is John 14, 6, right? Where Jesus Christ himself, I want you to think about how narrow Christianity gets with Christ when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, right? I mean, that, what does that do with every other religion in the world right there? What's it do? It eliminates it. Ooh, is that okay? I mean, does that settle all right with you? I mean, have you ever talked to somebody? I've got a guy I've talked to before about Christ, and he'll talk all day long about God. He'll talk all day long about Jesus Christ. But as soon as you go as narrow as John fourteen six, you lose him, right? He can't go there. Oh, no, you know, those devout Muslims or those devout Buddhists certainly... They, you know, they're following the same God, the Father, right? So Jesus just, I mean, he just strips it all away right there. And, and I remember one time the Lord gave me an opportunity to use that verse. I was in a barber shop with a guy, and um, I think I've told, have I told you all that story before, the black barber shop? Have you ever been in, in a black people's barber shops? We as white folks are ripped off. If you want a treat, you go to a black barber. I mean, I'm telling you, man, you don't get a 15-minute haircut. It's, a, it's an ordeal. You know, they, they rub your head. They do this. They do that. I mean, it, I was like, man, I'm jealous. So anyway, I got this guy there, and um, this place is packed. So we've been there 30 minutes already. And in and, and 45 minutes, now it's his turn. And I mean, they were talking, the guys in there were just talking. And so he and I were engaged in conversation with him. And, and so now he's in the chair and he's getting his hair cut. And this guy walks in the door and, oh, no, I'm sorry, let me back up. So they're talking, the guy, the barber was saying, you know, that, boy, I'm just tired of everything in life just seems to change all the time. You know, nothing ever stays the same. And the, and the guy, my friend, getting his hair cut, he said, well, I know something that never changes. And I kid you not, every head in the place went to the chair like that. And the place went dead silent. And the barber turned the thing off. What is that? And he said, the word of God. You know, and I was like, wow, that's pretty good. And about that time, I kid you not, this guy walks in the door and the barber says, well, that guy's a Muslim. He doesn't believe in the word of God. And um, then the guy in the chair said, hey, Tim, you better take over now. And I was like, (laughs) great, you know. So I, all I said was, look, you know, you are the one that has to decide for yourself, John 14, 6, right? And we talked about that. And, And, you know, that's what these Gnostics, they could not get their thoughts around the fact that Jesus Christ is God. And so I quoted that verse and I said, look, you know, you guys got to make that that decision yourselves. You know, um, Josh McDowell years ago came, you know, he was an atheist and, and the Lord, he, he set out to prove that, that, that Jesus is not God. And uh, he, he he, through his process, he came out with the thing that he uses in, in sharing the gospel now. And, and this is what I did in that barbershop. I said, you guys have to decide. He's, he's one of three things. He's either a stark raven lunatic for claiming to be God because he said he was. Or he's a liar, right? Or he's Lord. So you get to pick 
Lord, liar, lunatic. And, and, you know, I said, now we can just go back to our conversation now, right? So that, that went on like that. But that's, that's where we have to be in our thinking. And Josh McDowell as well um, came up with the mathematical formula. I think, Drew's you're a math major, aren't you? You probably know this, but for guys like me, um, the, the mathematical odds of Jesus Christ being God is is the same, or I'm sorry, yeah, the mathematical odds if of one person fulfilling only eight biblical prophecies, only eight, okay, and there's hundreds, right? Only eight. What do you think the mathematical odds are of that? Some of you engineers should know that, right? It's 10 to the 37th power, all right? So what does that mean? Is that 10 with 37 zeros at the end of it? Okay, now, that means nothing to me either. We could draw it out up here, and it still wouldn't mean anything to me. So Josh McDowell blesses guys like me, and he puts it into layman's terms. The mathematical odds of one person fulfilling eight biblical prophecies is this. You take the state of Texas, and you you cover it two feet deep with silver dollars, north to south, east to west. That's a lot of silver dollars, right? Two feet deep, 24 inches. Then you take one silver dollar and you paint it red on both sides. Then you fly over the state of Texas in a helicopter and you randomly pitch the red one out. And then you take a bulldozer and you mix all of those silver dollars, north to south, east to west. And then you blindfold a man and you give him one chance to pick the red one. That's the mathematical odds of one man fulfilling eight prophecies, and Jesus did, I can't remember how many, hundreds, so, right? So Josh McDowell came to the conclusion that, mathematically speaking, he's God. So, you know, had he been there, the Gnostics might not have had a problem, and Paul's mind didn't think that way. So Paul does a better, much better technique, as we'll see this morning, as he starts to show the... Um, supremacy of Christ. Um, but, you know, lots of, lots of problems with the Gnostics, but Paul is going to give an emphatic defense of the fact that Jesus is Christ. You know, he's, I heard a preacher say a long time ago, and when I was first saved, and this has just stuck with me all these years, is, you know, he, Jesus Christ is either Lord of all, or what? You probably know that statement. Or he's not Lord at all, Right? So we have to come to that conclusion, and, and Paul, that's what he's doing here. He just beautifully lays this out for us. So let's read Colossians 1, 15 through 20. It says, verse 15, remember where we ended last week talking about... Um, um, in verse 13, that the Father had delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So when the he starts in verse 15, he's talking about Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. 
He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. We'll stop right there. So the preeminent, the supremacy of Christ, uh, just a, you know, that's, uh, have y'all ever been up to Covenant College and Lookout Mountain? Yeah, I think there's sign, it says, at least it used to, it's been 20 years since I've been up there, but it says, I think it says, you know, Covenant College, Christ preeminent. You know, that's, that's a fabulous statement for our Savior, right? So look at verse 15. The opening line here describes Christ as the image of the invisible God. Now, you know, this idea of God being invisible is, you know, that's a given in both the Old and the New Testaments, right? There's scripture that, that shows us that. First Timothy 1.17 says, To the King of kings, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Hebrews 11.27, By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. That's a fabulous verse. This is Moses. By faith, he left and obeyed, right? As if he had seen the invisible God. You know, that that just convicts me so uh, hard because I, I have often said, wouldn't it be much easier to obey God if he were right here next to me. You know, if, I'm, if, if that was God standing here next to me instead of whoever, sitting on the couch, I wouldn't have as big a problem with temptation to look at something I shouldn't look at if Jesus was sitting next to me on the couch. Have you ever thought that way? Oh, if he only were here, I'd obey more, right? My mind goes there sometimes. But what about Moses? Look what he did, right? I mean, by faith... He obeyed just as if he had seen the invisible God. You know, that, you know, when I was studying that this week, I just, I just had to stop right there and ask the Lord to forgive me, you know, and, and forgive me for my puny way of thinking and then stretch me to be able to respond as, as Moses and obey without having to see God. Um, but then, interestingly, John um, in John one eighteen, says, No one has ever seen God. It goes on to say, The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. All right? So we got this invisible God that nobody's ever seen, and then God Himself makes Himself known. So really, I think we're safe in saying that Jesus is the exegesis, if you will, the drawing out of God. And the text shows us here um, that how he does this. And the answer comes when we understand this term, the image of God. The Greek word uh, translated image is, is the word that we get our English word icon. Okay, and, and that means uh, an image, a representation of what it's representing. And it, could, it also can be translated in the Greek language as a portrait. As, as if um, a picture, if you will, like if a soldier was away um, at war and he ran into, you know, one of those people who can do a drawing real quick and he has a picture of himself drawn and he sends it back to his family. It can be translated that way as well. So with that understanding or usage, we can say that Jesus is the portrait of God. Isn't that interesting? The portrait of God. 
But the meaning goes further. The meaning of icon goes further than the image of God. It also carries the idea of revealing the personal character of God. So you've got the picture, you know, physical picture in Jesus himself, but then the personal character of God being manifested to us as well. So Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, not just a plaster Paris representation or a, a, a mannequin, you know, but he is the revelation of what God is really like in physical as well as in character. And the writer of Hebrews uh, really expressed that well in Hebrews 1.3, where it says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory. Think of that. The sun, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So he radiates God's glory, and he's the exact representation of God's being. And the word translated uh, exact representation is is meant, uh, is the same thing as impressing with a die um, on a coin or a wax seal. The exact imprint of that, you know, the exact essence of God, if you will. So Jesus' supremacy in eternity is boldly proclaimed by the Apostle Paul here as the icon of the invisible God. Now, if that's true, that means he's supreme, right? I mean, this is God we're talking about. He's no second-rate little emanation among thousands of emanations from God that the Gnostics understood. He is God in human flesh. And look with me real quick at John chapter 10 Verse 30 through 33. John 10, 30 through 33. Again, Jesus speaking. In verse 30 in particular, look at that. I hope you have that underlined. I and the Father are one. All right. I mean, we could just stop right there, but look what else says. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Right? To think anything less of him with him saying that is blasphemy on our part, isn't it? And really, I think what, what you get to there is that's a mind of, of somebody that is denying Jesus Christ as being God. It, that's a mind blinded by Satan himself. Because 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, quote, In their case, the unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So there's the icon. He is the image of God. So as an image um, emphasizes Christ's relationship to the Father, well, then it says that he was firstborn over all creation. And that introduces his relationship to creation, which, by the way, he's also supreme in that, right? Paul describes this really in, in four different ways in these verses to us. He 
says that he's the firstborn, says that he's the creator, it says that he is the goal of creation, and he's the sustainer of creation. So look uh, back at Colossians 15, and it says that um, Paul calls him the firstborn over all of creation. Now, here's where you got to be real careful, because what pops into your mind when you think of firstborn over all creation? What do you think? Adam, okay, sure. Um, pardon? First thing. First thing created, yeah. And, uh, you know, that could be taken that way, that Jesus was the first person created. I mean, he's calling him the firstborn of all creation here, right? Guess who believes that? And they come to your doors. The Jehovah Witnesses, this is what they believe. And there's a, uh, uh, a guy uh, in, in the 250s, well, he was born in 256, Arius, that he believes this as well. And the Jehovah Witnesses are spinning off of that. But what should we always do when we're studying the Bible? You can't take one phrase of one verse and stand it over here on its own, can you? We always have to look in context. And in this context, Paul is telling us that he, he's the creator of everything, as well as the rest of the New Testament tells us as well, right? Which makes him, if he's the creator of everything, then what does that make him? It makes him eternal, right? John 1.1. 1, 1. Right. Anybody that's ever been around me knows that's, that's one of your fundamental memory verses, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, what? was God, and then, of course, most people memorize verse 12 with that as well, um, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, of course, talking about Christ, right? So, that makes him eternal, right? He was all, he's always been there. So, if you, if you look at the facts in the context, you can't think, uh, I'm sorry, most of all, the Jehovah Witnesses, the Gnostics, and people that follow Arius, they ignore the indisputable fact that while firstborn absolutely can mean first child. I mean, my daughter was my firstborn. My son was our secondborn, right? But oftentimes it can mean first in rank or honor, all right? The firstborn was actually a code word for the Messiah in Psalm eighty-nine twenty-seven. Listen to this, quote, I will also appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. That's talking about rank or honor. And it's used, uh, the people of Israel as a whole were sometimes called the firstborn of God. Were they the firstborn of God? No. Who was the first human being that we know of was, well, he really wasn't born. God created him out of nothing, out of the dust, you know, or Adam, right? So I guess that would mean the firstborn would be... uh, uh, what's his name? Cain or Abel? Which one of them came first? I can't remember. Cain. Yeah, so Cain really was the firstborn, if you want to look at it that way. But but Exodus 4.22 shows us that, that the, the whole nation of Israel is called the firstborn. So when Paul calls Christ the firstborn over all creation, he meant that the highest honor belongs to him. That's what it really means. It means that he is completely supreme in creation. Then you could throw out the question, well, why is that? Well, simply put, as Paul goes to show us this, because he is the creator, right? Or he was the creator. I don't don't believe anything else is being created. 
So he was the creator. And verse 16 tells us that. Look at this. For by him, talking about Jesus Christ, all things were created. Things in the heaven, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. So Jesus is the agent of creation. Now, theologians use a word called ex nihilo when they say that Jesus, God, created ex nihilo. That means out of nothing. All right, so even the Big Bang Theory can't work with that, right? Because you had to have something to bash together to bang to cause something to come out of it. You know, but God created ex nihilo, out of nothing. So that means that, what, you and I can't even create anything. We can make stuff, and some of us can make stuff a lot better than others, you know, but you got to have material to, to make anything. I mean, I, I know, you know, we take pride in some things we make, and we'll say, oh, look what I created, this really neat box. You know, you can go to Home Depot and make a little toolbox. And Better said, I guess you take your kids there and let them make a little toolbox. But they're using something. So when you think of creation from ex nihilo, you know, this is, what do you think of that? Does that boggle your mind a little bit? How did God make something out of nothing? But he did, right? And that includes everything in the heavens. That includes, and I don't know how you get here, um, everything that's invisible. You know, that would include angels and I don't know what else. Can you think of anything else that's invisible? Uh, Well, I guess lots of stuff was invisible in Paul's day. But, you know, now with microscopes and things of that nature, a lot more is visible. But he created all of those. Um, And if he created all the angels, too, who else does that include? Satan, the demons. Yeah, all of that goes into that. So the Gnostics taught that Christ, as we've said, is a spiritual emanation from the true God. But here Paul is boldly saying that it's him that created everything. Um, you know, so he's the creator of all, including those Gnostic people themselves. So by studying creation, we can gain a glimpse of the power of the knowledge of God and the wisdom of its creator. I've got some scientific facts, so if you'll excuse me while I read these, um, but just think of Jesus making this stuff and think of the Gnostics as well and their beliefs of who he was. The first one I have is the sheer size of the universe. The sun has a diameter diameter of 864,000 miles. That's 100 times that of the earth. That's big. And it could hold 1.3 million planets the size of the earth inside of it. It takes sunlight traveling 186,000 miles per second about 8.5 minutes to reach the earth. I mean, that's astounding, isn't it? I mean, think of that. I was, uh, every time, I've never done this, but every time of year, this time of year, I I start to think of wanting to go to these uh, drag races over in Commerce, Georgia in April. Never been to one of those, but, you know, I even saw on Facebook somebody had an ad there, and it's one of those souped-up 
cars, you know, and and the thing just disintegrates about halfway down the track. You know, that's what we all want to see, right? <laughs> yeah, and it's like, yeah, man, power, 10,000 horsepower those cars are, 10,000. They go, I mean, I thought this was fast. You know, those cars are going over 300 miles an hour in the quarter mile now, 186,000 miles per second. That's really fast. All I got, I don't have to go spend money at the drag races. I just go outside and think, wow, you know, that, that just reached me. 8.5 minutes later, that ray is here warming my body. Um, yet it, that same light would take more than four years to reach the nearest star, uh, which is 24 trillion miles from Earth whatever that means. The galaxy to which our sun belongs, the Milky Way, contains hundreds of billions of stars. You ever go outside and look at night? That's, that's our Milky Way galaxy. Astronomers now actually tell us that there are billions of galaxies. How many people are on Earth? Seven billion roughly, right? That means, guess what? Every one of those seven billion people can have a galaxy. There's the Tim Brown galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. Just think about that. I mean, that's huge, and he's created all of those. Um, They estimate that the number of stars is roughly the same as the number of the grains of sand on all of the world's beaches combined. Um, A change in the Earth's rotation around the sun or on its axis would be catastrophic. The earth would become either too hot or too cold to support life. I mean, just a wobble, one little twitch, and we either burn up or freeze instantly. If the moon were much nearer to the earth, think of the huge tides and how those would flood the continents. A change in the composition of the gases that make up our atmosphere would be fatal. Now listen to this. This is the Nobel Prize winner in 1918, Max Planck was one of the founders of modern physics. He wrote, quote, According to everything taught by the exact sciences about the immense realm of nature, a certain order prevails, one independent of the human mind, he wrote. This order can be formulated in terms of purposeful activity. Wow. Isn't that something? There is evidence of an intelligent order of the universe to which both man and nature are subservient, end quote. So now, think of that, and then think of the author of Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, you think? And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. So the testimony of nature to its creator is so clear that only a mind of unbelief that's blinded by the enemy can reject it. I mean, you just can't get around that. Paul writes in Romans 1.20, Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made, that's creation, so that they are without excuse. So like those who deny deny the deity of Christ, those who reject him as creator 
give evidence of just a mind blinded by the enemy. Um, so we're all aware of this, what this implies, right? This universe and how massive that is with the millions of light years across. But what about right here on our planet? Here we are. This is what we really get to see. Every eye can see this, right? There are 800,000, 800,000 cataloged insects known on planet Earth with billions in some of those species, all right, so you got 800,000 with some of those categories having billions, all created by Christ, right? And guess what? You and I, the world, scientists, are still discovering new things, but as I said a minute ago, I don't think they're really new. They've been here the whole time. We're just finding them. And one example of that that I read about is this European water spider. Have you ever heard of this thing? They, you know, found out about him maybe 20, 25 years ago. He's in ponds, only in Europe, hence the name. And uh, he lives on the bottom of the pond. Now, what's kind of triggering in your mind? Wait a minute, spiders breathe air. How does he live underwater? He doesn't have a giant, um, what do you call it, snorkel, you know. He, he, this guy, he comes up and he captures an air bubble on his abdomen, his, kind of his rear end, and he swims down to the bottom of the pond and he builds this intricate... First he holds his breath and he swims down to the bottom and he builds this intricate web. And then he gets these air bubbles and he brings them down and gets inside there and releases them. And then somehow that webbing of that particular spider is kind of sticky, I guess, somehow, that prevents the water from coming in. And this thing, you know, but he can go out and go back up and get more air and fill this thing up, and they have their babies in there. You know, wow, we just found that, right? But it's been there the whole time. But So who gets to enjoy all that stuff? You know, you ever thought about that? Who enjoys these things of creation? that we, God's been looking at that since he created the earth, getting enjoyment from it. It brings glory to him. Um, what about everybody now has these things coming around their house because the weather's getting warm? You know, you swat and they right back at you, right? The carpenter bees, you ever thought about those? You know, I mean, and, uh, you know, the carpenter bees, then how do you tell the difference between a carpenter bee and a bumblebee? They look exactly the same. I'll tell you how you tell. Grab one, you get stung, the other you don't. Kind of a hard way to find out. Or what about trees right now? Are you amazed with that? I mean, what if God just made two trees? You know, they were all the same. They're not. Um, I've got, I was so excited week before last. I was out in the back scrub yard back there outside the fence. And I saw this whole grove of trees that I hadn't noticed before. And so I got to looking real good at them. And they had long thorns on them. My first thought was hot dog hawthorns. You know, Kit can make some hawthorn jam. Wouldn't that be cool? Now I'm researching. I'm calling my buddy that we talk trees with and that I talk trees with. And, oh, if it is, let me know. Will the leaves come out? Oh. So I'm sharing this with Kit, and she, she burst my bubble. She said, oh, well, you hadn't heard. You know, it might be one of these Bradford pears that is cross-pollinated with this other tree that, you know, Bradford pears are supposed to be sterile. That was the big hype. If you've got a Bradford pear, come borrow my chainsaw. Get rid of it. Okay, it's, Daniel's a landscaper. He could tell us that's a, a dud tree. 
if your landscaper wants to plant a Bradford pear, fire him. Get some, <laughs> call Daniel, right? Uh, well, they have cross-pollinated with my wife research. I don't know how. She just, this is what it is. She's reading it to me. I said, yeah. What about my hawthorn, you know? But it's called a uh, calorie pear from Asia. Isn't it weird that all these weird species that take over all of our stuff are from Asia? But um, it's a, I mean, they just tell you to chop this thing down, you know, get rid of it. And so no hawthorns. But, I mean, just God's creation. I mean, it's just, we could go the rest of our time trying to reach the depths of this and never get it. You know, the most fragrant flower in the world. Where do you think it is? It's in, I can't remember what desert, but I've read about this thing. It's in a desert somewhere. Well, what's the first thing that pops into your mind about a desert? How in the world can a flower grow in a desert? There's no water. Well, it only blooms once a year for about 30 seconds. When water comes in this, when it rains, for the once a year that it rains in this portion of the world in the desert, this flower who enjoys the fragrance of that flower? We think roses are wonderful, right? Except, you know, those other roses, they don't have an odor, so they're not very good for your yard either. Um, the knockout rose. You know, mankind has manipulated that a little bit, yet it's still a rose. Blooms all the time, but it doesn't have the scent that we all like. I mean, just think about those kind of things. You know, when you start thinking about creation and what Jesus Christ, he's the one that did all this. So... Paul goes on to tell us here, though, that Christ is not only the creator of creation, but he is also the end, the goal. Because he tells us there at the end of verse 16, all things were created through him and what? For him. Isn't that incredible? Some people translate the word for as toward, uh, which makes the scene uh, even more dramatic. If you think about that, all things were created through him and towards him. And what that means is that everything began with him, and what? Everything's going to end with him. Kent Hughes, uh, in his commentary, said this, All things sprang forth at his command, and all things will return to him at his command. He is the beginning, and he is the end, the Alpha and the Omega. One day everything will give him glory, Philippians 2.11, right? One day every knee will bow. And since this is true, a, a practical application of this for us is that we should live completely for the glory of God as well, right? So Paul used a similar logic in Romans eleven thirty six. He said, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And then in Romans 12, 1, which Shane preached um, to us a month or so ago, he calls us to total commitment, uh, which in the King James, it says that this commitment, this is your, your reasonable service. The ESV says your spiritual worship, but then has a footnote that says your rational service. So as believers, we got to ask ourselves, you know, is my life rational, centered around God, or is it irrational, centered around the things of this world? You know, are we living totally for God, or are we living outside of that reality? Um, some of you that have traveled perhaps have noticed that when you're in other parts of the world and you meet a Christian, they seem to be, for some reason, a lot more God-centered, 
sold out, you know, not one foot in the world, one foot in, in the kingdom of God, but they seem to be so much more radically God-centered than we are. So, I, and I think my conclusion, I mean, y'all may have another one, but is that we, we've got a lot of distractions in our country that other parts of the world don't have, perhaps. But um, anyway, um, you know, are we, that's the challenge for us, are we living totally for God? So then in verse 17, Paul reach, he, he reaches the, the climax, the, the apex of his argument of Christ is superior in creation because he is the sustainer of it. Have you ever thought about that? He is the sustainer of it. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things hold together. The perfect tense of these verbs here tell us that he continues right now, today, to hold it all together. And apart from his continually holding it together would be what? Disintegration. It would fall apart. Again, Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now listen, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, again, I'm going to read some stuff from some physicists here. And just listen to this, these scientific facts, and then what we're talking about here of God holding this, Jesus holding this together by the word of his power. Physicists tell us that among the atoms swirling protons and electrons, there's a vast space like our solar system. Though some of them have theories as to why the atom holds together, no one knows for sure. Is that a correct statement? There's some physics guys in here. I, but we know, don't we? Isn't that incredible? We know Christ is not contained in matter, but he is the one, according to the Bible, that is holding it all together. And he, he maintains the delicate balance necessary for life to continue to exist. He quite literally holds all things Right? He is the power behind every consistency in the universe. In, there's a book called The Atom, A-T-O-M, not A-D-A-M, The Atom Speaks, and uh, by a guy named D. Lee Chestnut. And he describes the puzzle of why the nucleus of the atom holds together. He says, quote, consider the dilemma of the nuclear physicist when he finally looks in utter amazement at the pattern he had now drawn of the oxygen nucleus. For here are eight positively charged protons closely associated together within the confines of this tiny nucleus. With them are eight neutrons of a total of 16 particles, eight positively charged, eight with no charge. Earlier physicists had discovered that like charges of electricity and like magnetic poles repel each other, and unlike charges or magnetic poles attract each other. And the entire history of electrical phenomena and electrical equipment had been built upon these principles known as Coulomb's Law of Electrostatic Force and the Law of Magnetism. What was wrong, he asks, what holds the nucleus together? Why doesn't it fly apart? And therefore, why do not all atoms fly apart? Great question. 
that science puts forth. Chestnut goes on to describe the experiment performed in the 1920s and 30s that proved Colomb's law applied to atomic nuclei. Quote, Powerful atom smashers were used to fire protons into the nuclei of atoms. Those experiments also gave scientists an understanding of the incredibly powerful force that held protons together within the nucleus. Scientists have dubbed that force the stronger nuclear force, but have no explanation for why it exists. The physicist George Gamow, one of the founders of the Big Bang Theory of the Origin of the Universe, wrote, quote, the fact that we live in a world in which practically every object is a potential nuclear explosive without being blown to bits is due to the extreme difficulties that attend the starting of a nuclear reaction, end quote. Carl Darrow, physicist at Bell Laboratories, agrees. He writes, you grasp what this implies? It implies that all the massive nuclei have no right to be alive at all. Indeed, they should never have been created, and if created, they should have been blown up instantly. Yet, here they all are. Some inflexible inhibition is holding them relentlessly together. The nature of the inhibition is also a secret, one thus far reserved by nature for herself. You know, those guys, they just got to be scratching their heads. Why can't we figure this out? You know, and a simple-minded person can pick up the Word of God, and there's the answer, right? Got to have the faith that Moses showed us a minute ago, but we know from the Bible that, that one day, and this, this solved the dilemma I'd had. I just hadn't studied it enough, I guess, this week when I was looking at this, but, you know, we know that one day God will dissolve the strong nuclear force, right? Peter writes that my dilemma was, you know, I know, according to Scripture, that, um, that, you know, God's going to uncreate the earth. How's he going to do it? Well, this answers it. Um, Peter describes that day in Second Peter 3.10, the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. So with the strong nuclear force no longer operative, Column's law will take effect and the nuclei of atoms will fall apart, right? They'll fly apart. The universe really will literally explode. So God created it that way. He's the one holding it together. Scientists can't figure out why it's holding together. We know, and that's the exact way God's going to uncreate it. When he says the time is the time, it's going to be done, right? But until that time, you and I can rejoice in Hebrews 1.3, the latter part of it, that Jesus Christ upholds all things by the power of his word. Isn't that great? I mean, so seeing Christ like this keeps us from the heresy of people like the Gnostics or the Jehovah Witnesses or whatever. And it really keeps us, it guards us into falling into Christ, I mean, I'm sorry, into man-centered thinking. And, and radically focuses us on Christ-centered, Christ-exalting thinking. And I think one thing today in our country is, is there's such a low view of God and such a high view of man, right? We have turned the, the 
the church has turned this doctrine completely upside down and has exalted mankind. And, and it's made it all about us. And it's not. It's not about us, right? It's about God and what he's done for us. And many commentators believe this portion of Paul's writing was actually a hymn before Paul came on the scene as a Christian. It was a well-known, often repeated hymn. And, you know, if you read, uh, I think it's in chapter 3, where Paul uh, tells us to uh, sing hymns and spiritual songs. Uh, Yeah, it's in verse uh, 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So Paul, was he was a singer, right? And, and this could have very easily have been a hymn. And when you think about it that way, uh, you know, this hymn is, is a, this, is, this is a hymn of the supremacy of Christ in creation. He's the firstborn. He has the highest place. He's the creator of everything. Every speck in the world is, a, is, is his creation. He is the goal of creation, moving everything towards him. He's the sustainer of creation, holding uh, even the breath that we believe, right, uh, that we breathe. You know, it's, it's really meant to stretch our simple minds and uh, to get us to be more radically focused on our Creator who holds all things together. Um, we're about out of time. I got... Well, yeah, we'll just stop right there. So any questions? Um, I did. I can't. I got to read this one, though. Listen to this. This is um, John Owen. We're talking about the revelation of Christ. Listen to this quote. It's It's a little bit long, not real long. But John Owen wrote, The revelation made of Christ in the blessed gospel, the revelation made of Christ in the blessed gospel, is far more excellent, more glorious, more filled with the rays of divine wisdom and goodness than the whole creation. Wow, isn't that good? The, the revelation of Jesus in the gospel is far more than anything creation will show us, and the just comprehension of it, if attainable, can, afford, can contain or afford. Without this knowledge, the mind of man however priding itself in other inventions and discoveries, is wrapped up in darkness and confusion. This, therefore, deserves the severest of our thoughts, the best of our meditations, and our utmost diligence in them. For if our future blessedness shall consist in living where he is and beholding of his glory, what better preparation can there be for it than a constant previous contemplation of the glory as revealed in the gospel that by a view of it we may be gradually transformed into that same glory isn't that good so we should be more enamored with the revelation of what god has given us in the gospel about christ and who he is than we are with all the beauties of what we see right i mean we're going to go out of here later this afternoon the I don't know if it's be raining or not, but, you know, it's warm out. The birds are more active than normal because it's springtime. And, you know, and, and that amazes us. But think of, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? And he came here for us. So 
that's what we need to be focused and enamored with more than the creation itself. So, any questions or final comments? Everybody get signed up? Yes, sir. I was just thinking so much about um, well, belief and unbelief. In that, when you know, when you consider these things you've talked about, the solar system and the spider and the, the length of you know, the size of the universe and the sun, all these things, and you even mentioned biology and chemistry. And the more you study it, the more amazing it is, and you want to cry out, praise God, we can't figure this out, right? Mm -hmm. But the unbeliever, many of them in this time, say, well, the Bible was written by sort of primitive people and their stories to explain things that they really couldn't understand. And these days we have science and we can explain some things. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. the irony is, the more science we have, the bigger the microscope, the more powerful the telescope, the more grand is the universe revealed to us. You know what I mean? So it's so yeah. ironic that, that the more we advance in science, the more you want to cry out, praise God, look at, yeah. look at what he's done. So, yeah. And then it, when you think of what is belief, belief isn't necessarily seeing that. The unbeliever has faith in something else. When they look at mm -hmm. that nucleus... What are they praising? I don't, I don't really know exactly. Yeah. Thank God that we can give glory to the real creator yeah. who made it. So. That's good, yeah. Yeah, it is, isn't it? And that's his creation doing that yeah. as well, yeah. Anything else? All right, we're dismissed.